0: No record, whether it's classified or unclassified or potentially subject to an executive privilege that that the former president could assert or attorney client, no record at all should have been on the premises of Mar-a-Lago. Every record, every presidential record should have gone to the National Archives at the moment, at the end, by the end of the Trump presidency.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer. With J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network.
2: Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, on August 8th, 2022, FBI agents entered the Mar-a-Lago residence of former President Trump in search of classified documents that were allegedly taken from the White House. Shortly after the search was executed, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland held a press conference announcing that he had approved the search warrant for Trump's residence and, in addition, filed a motion to unseal the warrant. Well, now that we have it, The FBI says it removed 11 sets of classified documents, including some documents that were marked as top secret and meant to be only available in special government facilities. So what does that mean for the former president? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will discuss the FBI's recent search for classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. We'll take a look at the Presidential Records Act, the role of the National Archives and Records Administration, and the penalty for mishandling those White House records. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined by Jason R. Barron, professor of the practice at the University of Maryland's College of Information Studies. Previously, Jason spent 33 years in federal service, including as a trial lawyer and senior counsel at the Department of Justice, where he acted as lead counsel in landmark cases involving the preservation of White House email. He was also the first appointed director of litigation at the National Archives and Records Administration. Jason recently appeared on CNN's New Day program and in a piece for The Washingtonian discussing today's topic. Welcome to the show, Jason.
0: Uh, Thanks very much, Craig. Pleasure to be here.
2: Thank you. Can you give us a little bit of background about the National Archives and Records Administration and its responsibilities as it relates to the Presidential Records Act?
0: Well, the uh, Presidential Records Act was passed in 1978, and it applied to all future presidents uh, from Ronald Reagan on. The act informs the president of his records management responsibilities uh, for his term in office. But when a president leaves office, the legal custody of all of the records of the White House goes to uh, the archivist of the United States on behalf of the National Archives. The National Archives and Records Administration is a federal agency that has as its mission record-keeping responsibilities and guidance for the entirety of government. But it also maintains presidential libraries and all White House records that come into its legal custody after a president leaves office.
2: Who do the records actually belong to while the president is in office? And he's, like right now, Biden is generating a bunch of different records. So they belong to President Biden or do they belong to the people?
0: This is a great question. Under the Presidential Records Act, things changed. Historically, from George Washington up through Richard Nixon, presidents themselves owned their records. They're basically private papers that they could take home with them and do with what they wish. Because the Presidential Records Act was forward-looking, it didn't include Carter and Ford. But after Ronald Reagan on, the records of the White House are... The American people's records, they're not a president's record. So President Biden, not his records. Former President Trump, not his records. They go, as I said, in the legal custody of the National Archives. They're stored there, both paper records and increasingly hundreds of millions of electronic records. And they are accessible under the Freedom of Information Act after a little bit of time passes after a presidency. So it's definitely the American people's records.
2: Well, right now, if we wanted to go back and take a look at some of presidential records in terms of the time that they become available, what records would we be able to look at?
0: So the statute itself allows the archivist five years after a president uh, leaves office to essentially collect and organize records that have come into the legal custody of NARA at the National Archives. But after that time, you can File a FOIA request, and archivists are opening records irrespective of litigation or FOIA requests or anything else. And so going back, uh, presidential libraries, as far back as Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt, well, those records are open. Um, as you get increasingly, you know more recent presidents, there's a certain percentage of records that haven't yet been opened yet. Because there's so many millions and tens of millions or hundreds of millions of records, and only a you know a, a smaller staff at the archives and presidential library uh, dedicated to them, uh, President Obama opted to have all of his records digitized, and that project goes on, and so they will be available both just with being opened uh, through NARA as well as um, you know for Freedom of Information Act requests. But it's really very important. That you know, NARA functions both as you know a preservation body. Uh, its mission is preservation, but also ensuring that that uh, there's access uh, to historical records, and that includes White House records.
2: So we've heard a lot about President Trump's tendency to rip up records and throw them away and flush them down the toilet. Is that legal? And what do we do about that?
0: So it's definitely not consistent with the Presidential Records Act, and frankly, it does raise questions in many people's minds as to whether it's a violation of of the criminal code in various respects to destroy government records, White House records. It's certainly something that is uh, unusual and needs to be seriously looked at. Uh, In terms of what one does about it, uh, the I must say that the Presidential Records Act itself allows presidents to basically uh, manage their collection of materials without judicial oversight. There's been a number of cases that have tried to get at um, uh, presidents to comply with various aspects of record-keeping laws, and, and they've been brushed back by the courts on standing principles that it's just the president cannot be um, subject to suit. But in the larger... Sort of court of public opinion and Congress, whatever there, are obviously uh, oversight that is possible if scandals arise, and you know White House counsel is involved in responding to them. But beyond that, it, it is it's extremely unfortunate to hear stories of a president destroying or mutilating or or uh, ultimately removing records.
2: Well, when it comes to scandals, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, probably too long for this podcast, as we've talked about beforehand. But you have a president here who kind of had a shocking, and I say shocking in the sense of unusual. I'm not aware of any president's house that's been under a search warrant before for public records. What, what are your thoughts about how this whole thing came about,
0: the search warrant into Mar-a-Lago? Well, it's all public reporting. I don't have a line into the actual people that have been you know, on the ground of this. The uh, archive staff is extraordinary, and at some point after January 20th, 2021, when the archives inherited these you know, vast amounts of records from the Trump White House, there must have been a determination that some key records that were well-known and reported on were not uh, found, uh, or there's some queries about them and, and you know unsatisfactory answers. I, I'm speculating here, but records like what former President Trump called his love letter, you know, from the North Korean dictator, and and uh, and others, uh, you know, the great Sharpie incident about Hurricane, and maybe others that are that are you know really well known. They didn't seem to be present in any of the collections, which usually have finding aids from the White House Office of Records Management or otherwise. And so, uh, very expert people probably noticed some anomalies. Uh, Early on and started to have conversations through, I'm sure, the general counsel's office and high level people at at the National Archives uh, with the former president's staff. Hey, you know, what's going on? We don't see these records. Do you have them? I don't know the tenor of those conversations. We can all speculate. But at some point, the archives was successful in having 15 boxes of records sent back to them from Mar-a-Lago and at that point, it seems from public reporting, it seems pretty clear that the archivists looked at the materials in the boxes, made inventories, and saw that uh, a number of those materials were classified um, at various levels, um, and and that set off alarm bells. They contacted the FBI, and from there, the FBI engaged in further conversations, including not just conversations, but a subpoena for Records at Mar-a-Lago, which from public reporting apparently was not responded to in any substantive way, and and that all is the background to a search warrant, and and this is an extraordinary circumstance. I you know it's never before has a search warrant been ginned up uh, for a former president, Uh, and and the the entire incident is uh, truly unfortunate. I have said repeatedly in recent days, that no record, no record, whether it's classified or unclassified or potentially subject to an executive privilege that that the former president could assert or attorney client, no record at all should have been on the premises of Mar-a-Lago. Every record, every presidential record should have gone to the National Archives at the moment, at the end, by the end of the Trump presidency. It's, It's incredible to me that that there were 15 boxes or additional boxes that were found of materials.
2: It is incredible. Well, Jason, at this time, we're gonna take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app.
1: Filing court documents Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com slash simple.
2: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm joined by Jason R. Barron. He's professor of the practice at University of Maryland's College of Information Studies. Right before the break, we were talking about kind of the absolute nature of presidential records. And Trump himself has there's been recently uh, statements that he's made that he's he's going to, you know, severely enforce government records, and that was kind of on the heels of his complaints about Hillary's emails. He also upped signed into law a, a new revision to a act that increased the penalties for for the type of thing he's just done. and You've just described. Take a leap for a moment. You know, let's talk about what the enforcement's going to be here. You know, we had Rosenthal's were executed. We've had people recently put into jail for long periods of time. Speculate away here. What do you think's going to happen?
0: Right. Well, this is something that, you yeah, know, truly is speculative because none of us know what the Department of Justice next moves are, but it's been certainly... Widely discussed that there are various statutes that are at play, uh, statutory provisions under Title 18 of the U.S. Code, the criminal code, that relate to the removal of records, whether they're classified or not, and the removal of uh, records that involve uh, national security concerns. And that provision doesn't necessarily line up with top secret, secret classified, because it was made before the present-day classifications are in place but there are several statutory provisions that talk about the removal improper removal of records and uh, while um, no prior president has been caught up in uh, you know discussions about uh, uh, whether they violated uh, those provisions there those provisions have been uh, used in a number of other cases of individuals that we all know. Um, Sandy Berger uh, was caught uh, removing documents. They were copies of documents, but they were still documents from the National Archives in connection. I mean, he put them in his pants and took them out of the building and it was, you know quite something. And he ended up uh, pleading out to a, a misdemeanor on that. There are other instances involving David Petraeus and John Deutsch, the former CIA director, and Ollie North, and John Poindexter, all of whom were indicted for having removed materials, many of which were classified from a government agency. And so there are instances where the statute has been invoked. And so, you know, there's precedent here uh, for doing that. Uh, And, you know, how it will play out here, I I do not know.
2: It'll be interesting to see. Well, you mentioned that this is one of the first times that, a, if not the only time, that the a president's home has been under a search warrant. What's the historical uh, significance of what we've been talking about, of this particular action?
0: Right. Well, I, I'm i glad you, you said that because I think all of us who have worked at the National Archives, we're amazed of the brazenness of, of what's occurred here, of taking out records uh, from the White House and not and not placing them into the National Archives custody. It's it's in my experience, no president has acted in this fashion before. We need to step back and ask whether there should be some measure of greater oversight uh, when there are presidential transitions, so that this never happens again. And and there have been uh, a number of proposals put forward to empower the archivist. To have a greater oversight of uh, the process, you know, between a November election and January twentieth, and so I certainly uh, support those proposals. Beyond that, one can't legislate against any kind of criminal conduct um, that could be imaginable. These events are have been; uh, they truly are what we're what we're living through now is truly of historical import and will be part of, uh, of the history of our country.
2: What is the significance of maintaining these public records? I mean, in law school, I remember we always talked about the social policy behind the law. Why do we want to maintain these records?
0: What's the importance of them? Well, it really goes back to James Madison, who is one of our founding fathers. He, he wrote a popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. Knowledge will forever govern ignorance. What he's saying is that the people have the right to understand what their government is all about. And, and in more recent times, there, the words accountability and transparency come to mind. There needs to be a way for all of us to understand what each agency of the federal government is up to, and also, in historical perspective, what the White House has done during its years in terms of its actions, policies, what you know how people talk to each other and and the development of policies that affect all of us, and so the Freedom of Information Act and other related sunshine statutes are a, are a means at ensuring that Madison's vision is still alive. all of that. Fundamentally, though, turns on whether uh, agencies and whether the White House keeps adequate and proper documentation of its activities. And, and the Presidential Records Act requires a president to implement records management controls and other necessary actions, uh, taking steps to ensure that his deliberations, decisions, policies that reflect his duties, his official duties are all documented. And so, you know, it's important uh, to have a complete record that will then uh, ensure uh, transparency.
2: You know, the history of the presidential record keeping Act uh, started in 1978 uh, with, a, with the Presidential Records Act, and I'm old enough to remember the 18 missing minutes of tape that uh, Nixon was accused of. And of course, the act was not in effect then. Was it that situation that generated the Presidential Records Act? How did it come into being?
0: Yes, you're exactly right, um, that the abuses of power that were found in the Nixon presidency, there were articles of impeachment. Of course, he resigned before he was impeached and uh, resigned in August 1974. But the entire circumstances of Watergate and the criminality of many of his staff uh, convinced Congress to enact a special statute to basically seize records of the Nixon presidency that enactment of law then led to a broader statute that would uh, affect all presidents going forward and changed what we said before, which is from personal ownership by presidents to public ownership. So Watergate was a, a key uh, turning point. You mentioned the 18 and a half minute gap. I must say that with respect to the Watergate tapes, you know, it, it, it has occurred to me that President Nixon didn't have to have tapes at all in his Oval Office. He did a much larger job of that in terms of maintaining tapes, a uh, broader uh, um, number of tapes than any prior president, although there had been some tapes in, in, uh, in for example, President Kennedy, Johnson, and even Roosevelt, uh, uh, some recordings in the Oval Office. But Nixon's was, you know, every day and in multiple places and um, a huge amount of tapes came of that. And he caught himself up in, in having those materials. It seems to me that the present scandal... Also is one of the former president's own making. Um, he certainly – there was no – there was just no need to take any records out of the White House and bring them to his private residence because under the Presidential Records Act, he has the right to review his records of his presidency the archives would have been just fine with taking requests from the former president or one of his representatives to go look at and and review uh, records now if they're classified there would have to be special clearances and special procedures and there are restrictions on how to review but you know he certainly has that right and so it's a it's sort of it's very much a self-inflicted injury
2: let's talk about that. That's probably my second most favorite question that I wanted to ask today. And that's the range of excuses that we've heard from Trump about why he took it to oops, to I took it home to review for work. Based on the excuses that you've heard or seen or read in public reporting, are any of those valid excuses for taking documents from
0: the White House? No. Uh, (laughs) I've emphatically (laughs) said that. Uh, in multiple forums. Um, and I said that earlier here right. that no record should have been taken to Mar-a-Lago. The excuses that I've heard or the defenses or whatever include that some of them were executive privilege, subject to executive privilege, which a president and a former president can certainly assert as shield from from uh, public access. and And we saw s- the executive privilege arguments Played out spectacularly and, you, and uh, in a novel way when uh, earlier uh, this year, the January 6th Commission uh, wished to have documents from the National Archives that were White House records. Uh, President Trump objected on executive privilege grounds to some of them being released. President Biden said, go ahead and release them. He, he waived executive privilege and that conflict ended up in court and all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, which allowed uh, the Congress to to get those records, but so former President Trump certainly has the right to assert executive privilege uh, on any batch of records. What he doesn't have the right to do is take the records to, you know, out of where they should be, which is the National Archives, and somehow unilaterally say that they're privileged and therefore not give it out. In fact, that really can't be done because the incumbent president, by law, has a right to weigh in with their opinions, as President Biden did in this earlier instance. And so that doesn't work, Uh, nor does attorney-client work, nor does any other privilege you can think of work as a defense as to why one wouldn't give back records when they're found. You can certainly have, you know, you can assert one's rights as a former president when access requests come in. But there's a well-known procedures and protocols for doing that. And here, they, they certainly have never been followed. And so there really is no, – there's just no excuse. I, I guess one more thing, which would be classified records. And here, it's extremely problematic. Not only is there no per se right for a former president to hold classified records, but even in instances where copies of classified records are available to a former president – it needs to be in a skiff in a sensitive compartmented information facility. I don't believe there was a working skiff up here in, during this time period at Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, from all public reporting, it, it seems that classified records were not handled in any way, shape, or form uh, the way that they would be by government uh, staff. And so I, there's just, I mean, the bottom line here, Greg, is there's no excuse.
2: That seems pretty clear. So it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back.
1: If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. Democracy Decoded, a podcast by Campaign Legal Center, examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. Listen at democracydecoded.org to their new season, which takes a deep dive into democracy at the state and local level. By highlighting different ways to ensure that every voter's voice is heard.
2: Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's JD McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got. So many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet Guy, I bet he even went to a law
0: school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found.
2: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with Professor of the Practice at University of Maryland College of Information Studies, Jason R. Barron. Well, do you think there are any likelihood that there are any assistants of President Trump that are going to get involved with the, any kind of prosecution that arises out of this, or at least in Dutch with the DOJ, from the standpoint of, you know, there's certainly he didn't pick the boxes up and, he you know, there are other people that work with him that knew what was in those boxes, presumably.
0: I am sure that uh, both DOJ and with the assistance of the FBI will be doing due diligence, including interviewing and uh, subjecting staff perhaps to formal process on their role uh, with respect to the documents that are have been found at Mar-a-Lago. But beyond that, you know, this is a question that's really uh, for DOJ and, and held very close to the vest at DOJ. So I wouldn't be able to comment any further on that.
2: Right. If you take the search warrant that we've now seen and you trace that back through the process and through DOJ, Was it the archivists who generated the issue in the first place? I mean, they were the ones, you said in the beginning, that reviewed the records and then flagged it. Can you describe the process of how the National Archives would reach out to the DOJ and then generate this uh, search warrant?
0: Well, as I said, you know, it's a little bit unknown as to what was the trigger originally to inform archive staff That there were missing documents, but going down sort of the timeline here, as I said, there once uh, fifteen boxes had been retrieved and looked through their classified records, and I think at that point, from public reporting, that the archives contacted the FBI, and so an investigation was started. And from there, it's not the role of the National Archives. You know, they can certainly give background to enforcement and law enforcement authorities and to DOJ. But uh, the, um, it really, the ball is then in the FBI's and DOJ's court. And so, you know, the expertise of the archives is simply in identifying what documents may not be present and any anomalies in the handling of those documents. So it's a, it's a DOJ FBI show at that point to go forward. And as I said, there. My understanding from reporting is that there there was a subpoena that was precedent to the search warrant. And if a subpoena wasn't successful in obtaining additional documents and from reporting, you know, if there's an informant that says there are additional documents uh, at the residence, then, you know, it's quite understandable that DOJ and FBI would uh, resort to, you know, having a search warrant.
2: Well, Jason, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. and It's time to wrap up with your final thoughts, contact information, if you'd like. Uh, so sum it up for us, please.
0: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be here. I, I think uh, I want to emphasize to anyone listening that uh, I was extraordinarily privileged to work at the National Archives for 13 years there are no better you know civil servants that are out there they're completely dedicated to their job and i think it's a tribute to them that they they came forward they identified uh, the problems here and then let uh, the process uh, work on that and uh, you know and i think we also think that we're living in extremely interesting times with respect to the actions here and of historical import and, and i think there's a need for some legislation to try to tighten things up so that there'd be greater oversight. So with that, I, um, uh, at the University of Maryland, um, if you simply Google me and uh, Jason Barron Maryland, you'll, you'll get my personal page, and I'm happy to talk to anyone who's listening about uh, records issues. It's been my life for decades, and so appreciate the opportunity, Craig, to, uh, to be on the program.
2: Well, you're quite welcome, and thank you. It's been a tremendously interesting discussion. Of, I think, as you said, great historical significance. Well, for our listeners, I'd like to thank our guest, Jason R. Barron. It's been a pleasure having you on the show.
0: Thank you so much, Craig.
2: We're on new ground. We're certainly going to be making history with the outcome of this situation. And Jason is right not to speculate about what's going to happen. We have Pretty known, severe penalties on this. And by known, I mean President Trump himself has railed on the issue and has increased the penalty for the violations that it appears he's been in violation of, or at least at this point, been accused of. So hang on to your hats. We're in for a ride. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us, at legaltalknetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think
1: lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes.